show devotion. Besides, and I think of Cheryl as I say this, besides being a song by Earth, Wind, and Fire, because you would bring up a song, which I love that. Devotion, though, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or a cause. You could typically tell if someone or a group is devoted to something by their actions. If I claim to be devoted to a certain activity, but fail to give that particular activity my time and attention, you would be right in questioning my devotion to that activity. Before my recent string of injuries, the one you just heard about my back, there was no question to my devotion to running. In fact, throughout most of the winter, no matter what the weather, you can guarantee that come 5 a.m., my feet would be hitting the pavement. And some of you would even see my running on Instagram there. I would go to work on a rainy, cold, windy day, and as I entered the building, the first question that I would be asked is this, Pete, did you run this morning? My answer would almost be the same each time I was asked the question. Of course I ran this morning. So not even weather was stopping me from going outside and hitting the pavement. We typically know whether or not a certain individual is devoted to his or her favorite sports team. That is a context that probably most of us are familiar with. No matter how bad the team gets, no matter how many questionable decisions the front office makes, that fan faithfully continues to watch every game and to don his or her favorite team's apparel as if their team is the best in the league and en route to winning the championship. And if anyone says anything bad about their favorite team, especially in the midst of a losing season, they're ready to defend their team and let the other person know that their team is on the brink of either turning their season around or if that doesn't look like it's going to be the case, then they'll assure them with the all too famous words, just wait until next year. Just wait until next year. That's when my team is going to put it together. As you can observe based on the examples that I just provided, devotion goes far beyond a, lo a love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a particular person, activity, or cause. But it also entails remaining faithful to that particular thing, no matter the circumstances. A husband and wife can claim to be devoted to one another, but the true test of devotion will be evident when the honeymoon is over. When the couple is now living together in each one's habits, faults, moods, and idiosyncrasies are on full display on a daily basis, will that devotion remain? When things like finances or physical appearance change, will that husband or wife still be devoted? Questions that we have to ask when it comes to devotion. For those here today, whether physically or via the internet, I want to take this time to commend you for your devotion to the Lord and this church. Over this last year, as John iterated earlier, we've gone through a lot as a body of believers, yet you have remained faithful. As a body, we've dealt with and continue to deal with this pandemic. In dealing with the pandemic, you might have disagreed with a fellow member or members or even church leadership on the effectiveness of masks or whether we as the church should obey the civil authorities and the restrictions that they've put in place to deal with the pandemic but you still remained devoted. 
As a body, we've dealt with issues such as social justice and political affiliation. These issues caused quite a stir to the point where we were airing our differences on different social media platforms. Yet in spite of that, you have still remained devoted. As a body, we've dealt with issues and circumstances within the church that possibly brought us hurt or terribly grieved us. We've seen key leaders and members leave the church, and unfortunately, we've even dealt with major sin amongst the body. Yet in spite of this, you have still remained devoted. Now, I'm not bringing these things up to make you sad. That's not the intent of me bringing up what we've been through in this last year. But my purpose in bringing these things up is twofold. First, as I stated earlier, it is to commend you. Because in the midst of all the things that I mentioned, you are still here, faithfully attending and looking to do the work that God has called you to do here on the Jersey Shore. The second reason is to encourage you to stay devoted to the things that matter. As the restrictions of this pandemic are lifted and as the dust settles and more and more people start physically coming to church, we're gonna have a more complete picture of who has left or who has remained. Some of you have already expressed some concerns to your elders or community group leaders about the amount of people who left and how you want to get the ball rolling on different ministries so we can quote unquote, get our numbers back up. And this is why I want to encourage you to remain devoted to the things that God has called us to remain devoted to. Acts 2, 41 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 37, show us what the early church devoted themselves to and how it was God who added to their numbers as they remained faithful. As we look at chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, the text tells us in verse 42 that the early church was devoted to four things. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verses 43 through 47 and also chapter 4, 32 through 37 show us just how truly devoted the early converts were to these spiritual practices. Let's take a look at each one of these four distinctions so we can get a closer look at what we are called to be devoted to. The first one, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. There is no question or dispute that the apostles were given the charge to teach about and be witnesses to the Christ as they were commissioned by Jesus himself before his ascension. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In Acts 1.8, as we observed three weeks ago, Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This commissioning is further made evident by the fact that it was accompanied by many signs and wonders. Notice Acts 2.43 and Acts 4.33. In Acts 2.43, we read, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And in Acts 4.33, we read, And with great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Signs and wonders are used throughout the Bible to verify that the person sent by God to speak on God's behalf was truly sent by God and commissioned to speak on his behalf. We see this in Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9, as Moses is commissioned to go before Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. It says there that Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, a familiar story for many, we see Elijah raise the widow's son, and she says the following in verse 24, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. In the gospel, according to John chapter 10, verses 20 through, 22 rather, through 42, as the Jews demand that Jesus tell them plainly that he is the Christ, and he tells them that he and the Father are one, he tells them several times that his works, or signs and miracles, attest to who he is. In John 10, 25, Jesus says, the work that I do in my Father's name bears witness about me. And in verses 37 through 38 of the same chapter, Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Paul distinguishes himself from false apostles when he defends his ministry on, or to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, when he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these signs and wonders verify that the person was truly sent by the Lord. Since the apostles' teaching was commissioned by Jesus himself and accompanied with signs and wonders, it is worthy to be devoted to. But what exactly did this teaching consist of? Bible commentator Ajith Fernando believes that the apostles' teaching most likely consisted of explanations of the nature of salvation, the person and work of Christ, other features of the Christian life, and the message of the kingdom. 
We can observe each one of these features as we read the preceding texts of chapters 2, 41 through 47, and chapters 4, 32 through 37. For the sake of time, I won't read these verses, but I will provide a brief summary. In chapter 2, 22 through 24, and in verses 31 through 32, and also in chapter 4, 10, we observe through the words of Peter that the teaching consisted of the works of Jesus and his death and resurrection. In 2.36, we observe that this teaching proclaimed that God was made, or that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And John has reminded us week after week, anytime we see that word Lord, we're to put the word King in place there. In 2.38, we observe that the teaching also consisted of calling people to repentance in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And in chapter 4.12, we see that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In essence, this teaching consisted of Christ and him crucified. And that is why the church then and now must be devoted to this teaching because it glorifies the name of its risen Lord and provides the only way of salvation. Although there are no apostles today, the church is still to be devoted to the word of God and listen to those who have been charged to preach the word. The apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In every situation, the church is to be devoted to the word of God. Lastly, as we think of our devotion to the word of God, we must remember that it must be preached and received by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives those who preach the word, the words to say, and it is the spirit who reveals the word to the hearers of the word. Jesus, when he promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples, tells them this in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus, when telling his disciples of the persecution they will face and how they will be delivered before governors and kings for his sake, To bear witness before them assures his disciples to not be anxious about what they are to say, but assures them in Matthew 10, 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. We see this assurance fulfilled in Acts 4, 8 through 12, as Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit as he addresses the Jewish council boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. For the hearers of the word to understand the word, they must also rely on the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, 13, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapters, chapter 1, rather, paragraphs 5 and speak, 6, rather, speaks on the necessity of the Spirit when it comes to the Word of God. Chapter 1, 5 says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from what? The inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And in chapter 1, 6, it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things that are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Pastors that are here today or, or listening on the internet, as we read these words and as we think of our dependency on the spirit, may we not be presumptuous as we prepare our sermons to be preached on a given Sunday. May we be as quick to go to our knees in prayer as we are to open up a commentary as we prepare to expound on God's word. Saints, as we come to church on Sunday, let us pray that the Spirit would quiet our hearts and give us ears to hear and the ability to understand such things that are revealed in Scripture. As we hear the word of God, may we be in awe just like these early Christians were as they heard the apostles' teaching. And that is my encouragement to you. May we be devoted to the word of God, and may our prayer and reliance on the Spirit be evidence of that. We also see that the early church was not only devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoted to the fellowship. The Greek word used here is koinonia, which means not only fellowship, but a close mutual relationship or participation, a sharing in, a partnership, or a contribution or gift. As we look at this section in verses 32 through 37 in chapter 4, we'll see just how deep the fellowship was amongst these early believers. 
In chapter 2, verse 44, it says they were together and had all things in common. In chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The word for common in verses 244 and 432 is close to the word for fellowship in verse 242, which is koina. So these new believers had such a, such a close mutual relationship, such a sharing in that they were of one heart and mind, and they didn't consider their belongings as their own. Now, we can't be certain that this unanimity covered all spheres, such as politics or culture, but we can be certain, based on the text, that it did entail personal possessions. None of these converts believed that their possessions was their own, but instead, they sold those possessions and belongings in order to distribute the proceeds to all and bless those who were in need. Now, a couple of things to note here before I'm accused of espousing communism. Because I know someone's saying here, he wants me to take my stuff and give it to somebody else. Where's he going with this? First, scholars vary on whether or not everyone took part in selling their possessions or houses, as we'll see in chapter 4, since believers were meeting in each other's houses for fellowship and to break bread. So the logic with that is, is that if they still had houses to meet in, then not everybody was selling their house, right? Second, there is no command to do this, nor was it expected to be done by compulsion. We can easily conclude this from chapter 5 in the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira. As they sell their house and then keep some of the proceeds from the sale for themselves, while of course trying to appear as if they gave all the proceeds, Peter tells them, while the house was unsold, it was still theirs. And even when it was sold, the proceeds from the house was still theirs and could have been used for themselves. So there's no command that any individual had to go out and sell their possessions. This is something that these early believers did. So as we look at these texts, we see that the early believers weren't commanded or forced to give but they gave because, as verse 46 tells us, they were generous and they didn't want to see another believer in need. That's how much they had in common, that as they looked at a fellow brother or sister and saw that that brother or sister was in need, they didn't want to leave them hanging. They wanted to bless them with what they had. Redeemer, this is something that we're already devoted to. And as we move forward, we must remain devoted to. The reason why I can say this is something that we are already devoted to, there's nothing like being in a meeting with, a, with fellow elders and hearing that the church I attend is already in the act of such fellowship. So not to give you full details, but to hear that during this pandemic that we had a member move because of financial difficulty, and then to hear that that person didn't even have enough money to complete their move, so that the people within that individual's community group got together and between cash and gift cards blessed that individual with $2,000 speaks volumes to how devoted Redeemer Fellowship is to true fellowship. You recognize the need 
And instead of saying, as James would, would say in, in chapter 2, I'll pray for you. You went out and reached in your pockets and fulfilled that need. And that's what we're called to do as the people of God. I will say this now because I believe this wholeheartedly, that generosity such as that will prove more fruitful to the church than any program that we can introduce or implement. Now, I'm not saying that programs don't have a place in the church, but what I am saying is this. The thing that's going to distinguish us us from other churches is not how many programs and how well we do them, but our love for one another and our desire to take care of one another as each has a need. That's what's going to distinguish us from other churches, a heart that's looking to bless others. And saints, as this pandemic continues, this might be an area where our resources might be most needed. As those among us lose their jobs or get laid off or suffer other financial hardships, my hope is that we as the body of Christ will remain devoted to giving so that we might bless those in need. That is my hope. And if all of us here are okay financially, but the opportunity comes where we can bless those outside the body in need, then let us still remain devoted to giving so that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus, or as Pastor John likes to say, in order that we might be able to show the Jersey Shore what God is like. If we want an opportunity to show the Jersey Shore what God is like, let it be in our devotion to giving. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 reminds us that this type of giving can only be done through the Spirit. As Paul encourages the Philippians to follow Jesus' example so that they can complete his joy by being of the same mind, and as he calls them to not only look after their own interests, but also look to the interests of others, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May we pray that the Spirit will remind us that it is better to give than receive. And may he encourage us to look after the interest of others, not only in our body, but beyond to even the least of these. May that be our heart. The believer's fellowship not only consisted in giving as each one had need, but it also consisted in the breaking of bread. Now, scholars disagree on what this breaking of bread might consist of. As some scholars believe that this breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper, while others posit that it is simply a fellowship meal. Again, Bible commentator Ajith Fernando suggests that since the other three features mentioned in verse 42, the teaching, the fellowship, and prayer, are spiritual activities, the breaking of bread is also a spiritual activity, i.e., the Lord's Supper. But several scholars hold that the phrase breaking of bread in Acts refers to the Lord's Supper, which was probably part of the ordinary fellowship meals described in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians 11 there, they're partaking in the Lord's Supper and fellowship meals together. And what's happening, if you guys remember? People are getting their eat on. 
during this, so much so that they're forgetting the other believers and the poor believers and not leaving any remains for them. And I hold to this last view that it more than likely refers to the Lord's Supper and an ordinary fellowship meal. And the reason why is verse 46 tells us that the breaking of bread took place in the believers' homes and was received with glad and generous hearts. I don't think the breaking of bread would have occurred at the temple since it's exclusively Christian and not Jewish. I can't see them breaking bread in honor of our risen Lord at the temple during that time. An interesting thing to note, though, is that if Luke is indeed referring to the Lord's Supper, verse 46 tells us that this is something that the new believers partook in daily. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I've been in churches where the belief was that having the Lord's Supper more than once a month was too much like the Catholic Church and therefore bad. And yet we can surmise that the early church possibly partook of the Lord's Supper daily. I don't know what that looked like since our practices today concerning the meal are far different than the early churches. But if the church truly did hold to this practice daily, then we can see that the early church was a church that truly held to Jesus' words when he said, do this often in remembrance of me. We also observe that not only was the breaking of bread done daily, but it produced gratitude, generosity, praise, and favor. You could see that this wasn't forced fellowship, but the early believers truly enjoyed each other's company. Those that partook in these meals were thankful. Those that prepared them gave generously. I would say that the meal prepared was probably comparable to a feast because 1 Corinthians 11 gives us this impression, and so does the term generous as we look at verse 46. And as each of the early believers had an opportunity to partake in these meals, they received their daily bread with praise on their lips, thanking God for his provision as they recognized that it is from him that all blessings flow. Their fellowship even provided them favor with the outside community. People observed this fellowship that entailed providing for one another and breaking bread, and they couldn't speak a bad word against it. And that's one of the things that we have to remember as we partake in our fellowship. The outside world is looking. What do they see when they see us partake in our fellowship? The people that observed this fellowship that entailed providing for one another and breaking bread couldn't speak a bad word against it. And we know from the text that this favor didn't last long, but for now, those outside the church are viewing the church with favor. And we know it doesn't last long because we see that Saul and the council start ravaging the church and persecuting the church by chapter 8 in the book of Acts. So as we think of being devoted to the breaking of bread, I have a couple questions for us to ponder. As the COVID restrictions dwindle and we begin to fellowship in person again, will this be the type of fruit that our fellowship produces? Will our fellowship produce gratitude, generosity, praise, and favor? 
in essence, we can ask the question, as we gather together, are we going to be a group of people that enjoy one another? My hope is that that answer is yes, even in the midst of some of the things that I brought up earlier. As those who dwell where community groups take place, and as other people observe our community groups in action, will they look at our groups and our church with favor? We don't know the answers to these questions unless we remain devoted to the practice of breaking bread. So we can't answer any of this unless, as these restrictions dwindle down and we're able to come together, we actually practice fellowship. So my encouragement to you is, as these things dwindle, let us get back into the act of practicing fellowship. And it's going to be hard. We've already noted that it's been a year. So we've been a year on our own doing our own things. And now it's going to be setting that aside that we might be able to come together again as a body and share in the life of Christ. But my encouragement to you is that we do so. I also know that in our culture and with our pace of life, this probably isn't something that we can do daily. But my hope is that we'll remember the words of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where we're reminded and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. COVID has definitely made not coming together normal. Thus the joy we had this morning, right, seeing these new faces. But as these restrictions are lifted, may we pray that the Spirit gives us the courage, the time, and the strength to fellowship that we might stir one another to love and good works. May we be devoted to the fellowship that we might do so. Last, but certainly not least, the early believers were devoted to the prayers. Now, scholars believe that since the early believers were Jewish and still attended the temple, that these would be the daily prayers, which probably consisted of the Shema and some of the Psalms. An example of this is Acts 3.1, where Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. As we observe in the book of Acts, though, particularly in these first four chapters, the people of God not only prayed in the temple, but they prayed wherever they met. And these prayers weren't set prayers, but instead prayers that praised God and addressed the needs of the church. In Acts 1.14, we read that they prayed after witnessing Jesus' ascension. And they said, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In Acts 1, 24 and 25, as the assembly is seeking to replace Judas, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. To take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, and to cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Another example is Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. And it says, And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were to gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had protested to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As we look at these verses, we can easily conclude that the early church was a church that was dependent on God. It was a church that understood that in order to preach the word with boldness and conduct the affairs of the church, they would have to be a church that was devoted to prayer. And who would know this better than the apostles? They were the ones that witnessed Jesus continually in prayer during his earthly ministry. They were the ones who asked Jesus how to pray. And they were the ones who were rebuked by Jesus in the garden when he told them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The apostles knew for that them to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, they couldn't depend on themselves and their own abilities, but instead they had to be devoted to prayer and dependent on God so that they might be equipped to do the work of the kingdom. Redeemer Fellowship, may we be a church that is devoted to prayer. May we be a church that when the world around us appears to be falling apart, who doesn't run to our devices so we can go to our favorite social media platform and complain, but instead be a church that runs to the church or our community group that we as a body might bring our petitions to the true and living God. My hope is that we would be quicker to pray than we would be to complain. My job is not to be dependent on Joe Biden or the government to fix what's going on in the earth. My job is not to petition them. My job is to petition the Lord of hosts. He is the one that can bring forth change, and that's why we brought up the spirit in this. We, we depend on the spirit to change people's hearts, not politicians. So my prayer is that we would be a church that understands that and would go to prayer. May we be a church that understands that in order to do kingdom work, we must pray for strength and boldness, especially in a world as our world becomes more and more hostile to the church and the gospel. May we not hide in here and close the doors, but may we be a church that prays and goes forth in boldness, proclaiming the word of truth. May we be a church that has our prayer meetings just as full as our fellowship dinners. We have no problem coming together when it's time to get our eat on, which we just discussed was good. But may we be just as fervent when it's come time to pray that we all might cry out to God together. And for those who might be a little apprehensive of getting together to pray because you don't feel like you know how to pray, let me comfort you with these words from 826.27. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, 
for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So if you don't know what to pray, Romans assures us that the Spirit will give you the words to pray. So just as it gives the preachers the words to preach, it's going to give you the words to pray when you depend on the Spirit. So as we move forward as a church, my prayer is that we would be devoted to the preaching of God's word, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Let us, like the early church, be faithful in these things and trust God that if it's his will, in his sovereignty, he will add to our number just as he did with the early church and also throughout redemptive history. That's the beauty of looking at verses 41 through 47. There we see that it's not us who adds to the church. It's God who adds to his church. Our call is to be faithful. Our call is to be devoted to these things, that the word of the Lord might be proclaimed and that kingdom work might be fulfilled.